a Living History production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 hello. My name's Peter Hart and I'm with a masked stranger in my house today. Who is? Who are you masked stranger? He's dressed just like the Lone Ranger. It's very exciting. Hello. It's it's Gary. It's Arthur Mullard. Arthur Mullard, what a treat! Uh, <laughs> now, uh, what are we doing today, young Gary? Well, today it's the continuing story of the 16th DLI, and uh, this time, Pete, it's uh, entitled "Across the Garigliano." Not a bad effort. I know you've been worried about that. That's the big river that sort of runs across and provides some cover between Monte Camino and. Monte Cassino, dun, dun, dun. Which often overshadows Monte Camino, as Which we, we discussed did. last time. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, uh, the, 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 uh, the Durhams weren't involved in uh, Monte Cassino, which is why so many of them survived, I believe, to be interviewed. They've got their own trials, though. So what, um, it's a bit of a change of scene all round, isn't it? Why, why, why do I say the, the times, they are changed? Well, this is January 1944, and firstly, Eisenhower, he's left to become the supreme commander, charged with carrying out the D-Day invasion of Europe. Big job. Now, he was replaced by General Sir Henry Maitland Wilson, who was designated commander of the rebadged Allied Forces Mediterranean. Oh, Allied Forces Mediterranean. Very imaginative. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, 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 the, 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 there's other things, though. Um, one thing that stayed the same was General Sir Harold Alexander. He continued to command the 15th Army Group. <laughs> no, so I added the group. There. You added the group. Yeah. Who's, so in the, who's in it? That's the US 5th Army and the British 8th Army. But Montgomery, he'd also left... So he's no no longer commanding the 8th Army? No, no, he was uh, going to assume command of the 21st Army Group, who would launch Operation Overlord with the Normandy landings, which was just six months later. Yeah, and so he'd be under overall commander, under, under, sorry, under Dwight Eisenhower. So it's it's all changed. So who takes over... You don't like saying Dwight D. Eisenhower, do you? No. You don't like the D. No, I don't like American you don't stupid like middle letters. Dwight letter. D. Eisenhower. No, do you? Dwight Eisenhower. That's his name. Stupid middle letters. Mm. Now, Lieutenant General, you haven't got middle letters. Your name, have you? No, the, Lieutenant General Sir Oliver Leese took over the Eighth Army. So he, that's from Monte Montgomery. Monte Montgomery. He did, and the draining effects of the Monte Camino operations and the intimidating strength of the Gustav Line, founded on the Rock of Monte Cassino had brought a grim stalemate in the winter months. Yeah, uh, so they, they came up with, and this is always a bad idea, I think in warfare the words ambitious plan. Yes. <laughs> uh, what ambitious plan did they come? Actually, if they called it Operation Shingles, <laughs> thinking of your uncle who's suffering from shingles at the moment, say hello to your uncle. Hello, Uncle Daff. Uncle Daffy for Daffy Doug. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, so it's Operation Shingle, uh, uh, the singular uh, so what was Operation Shingle? Well, and why do I say imaginative with some sort of fear in my voice? Well, it was conceived to launch an assault landing at Anzio. I've heard of that. Some 26 miles north of Rome, with the intention of threatening the rear communications of the Gustav line. Now, that, right, let's go. That sounds a great idea. 
Well, it was controversial <laughs> as it clearly involved landing craft which were coveted by the D-Day planners, but it was also vulnerable to counterattacks if Clark's 5th Army could not batter their way forward. Now, again, I see the British, they're, they're still extending the parameters of the Italian campaign. Um, uh, why, why are they doing that? Well, you could ask whether it was uh, pessimism as to the prospects of Overlord or just a more mundane desire to keep up the pressure on the Germans. Mm, so not really thought through, from I'm guessing, from that. Um, now, so the great and the good, they're pondering their actions. Uh, what shall he do? Let's all... Uh, Operation Shingles. Now, that's unlucky sounding. Let's call it Shingle. So while they're all thinking that kind of thing, I suspect a lot of time went into the name of that operation. What are the Durham's doing? Well, they seem to think it's just a bit more of the same old, same old. Same old, same old. A bit like these podcasts. Okay? Yes, now on the 6th of January, the 16th DLI relieved the 6th Yorks and Lanks on the lower slopes of Mount Maggiore. Yeah, we're not going to deal with this so that much. They're called into action almost immediately. They're supporting the 5th Sherwood Foresters, making a night attack on Rocoa, Rocca, Rocca, Rocca Station, pushing towards Cedra on the 7th, 8th of January. We're not going to put anything about that. But, uh, be, well, yeah, well, all right, let's do something about it. Let's, we can't ignore this, can we? B Company, they're, they're again chosen to provide flank protection, a bit like, do you remember, in Monte Camino? Yes. And uh, they move forward. They wade across the Pequia River. I bet they didn't complain, did they? No. And then they followed a track to take defensive positions in a small wood. What would you have said after wading across that river and going up? Well, I wouldn't like to do it naked. <laughs> you thinking of the brambles and yes. the thorns. and? But so far... So good. However, the Foresters, their attack fails. Uh, uh, One of their companies gets into Cedra, but they can't hold their positions. Why not, you think? Well, uh, it's uh, the heavy shell fire and German counterattacks. German counterattacks? I've never heard those words before. Now, B Company had some shelling to endure, but held on until they were relieved by A Company. On the night of 9th of January, the rest of the battalion moves forward and they take over from the foresters, relieving. But as they were doing so, reports came in that Cedra had been abandoned by the Germans. And in consequence, an immediate night advance of some 1,000 yards was ordered. And here we're going to hear, it's it's an incredibly dramatic account, isn't it? And uh, you're going to be reading the words of Lieutenant Jerry Barnett of C Company. And I remember him telling me this. We had no maps of the terrain. It sounded like that. He sounded much. They hadn't been prepared. The German retreat was too fast. We had gridded aerial photographs with which we hoped to call for artillery fire if needed. We set off. First D Company went a short distance onto this flat valley bottom, arable land crisscrossed with ditches and hedges. Then C Company set off, more or less in single file, into this apparent wilderness. As soon as we left the road across a little river on a log bridge, one of my men dropped his rifle and without a second's hesitation instantly jumped off into this river, which was about four to five feet deep, and groped on the bottle for his rifle and found it. We crossed onto a stretch of very soft ground which was pockmarked with shell holes and we were being shelled. Then we moved out on this patrol, single file, platoon after platoon following the company commander. It sounds ridiculous, completely vulnerable to ambush. We moved to a collection of farm buildings, 
Cedra, this little mound in the valley bottom. I saw a big white cow in one of the byres there, deserted by the farmer. We put out sentries round the farm buildings and bedded down for the night. It was then the early hours of the morning. I found some German black bread, which I ate for supper. It was still reasonably fresh. Now, come the dawn, come the dawn, visibility still poor. Uh, why would that be? Thick mountain mist, that's why. It's hanging all over the valley with Cedra and Ewa. Did the cow survive the night? Yeah, I think so. I can normally hear. Normally, big white cows get shot. Well, no, they get missed, if you remember oh, that. Oh, yeah, that's true, they get missed. Ooh, I can hear him now, can you? Echoing across the ages. Um, now, a forward observation officer from 449 Battery, 70th Field Regiment. He comes forward and establishes an observation post alongside Jerry Barnett. Uh, then, as the mist slowly lifted, there was an alarm. What does Jerry Barnett say about that? One of the sentries had seen some German soldiers right outside the building. I rushed out as I was. I didn't even pick up my Tommy gun. I had my pistol on my belt, of course. I rushed straight out, and there they were a few yards from the door, a group of six to eight German soldiers. There was then something like half a dozen of my men with me, including my sergeant, and we ran at them. Two dropped to the ground in the ensuing melee, and the others scattered and ran. It was at that moment that this delightful sergeant of mine, a Yorkshireman, with an unbelievably big moustache, danced round us, waving his rifle and shouting, Try to take prisoners! Try to take prisoners! I can only say I felt absolutely delighted that such a humane action could take place at a time like that. But it didn't stop us, of course. There wasn't time to do anything about it. Two of the Germans had thrown themselves to the ground and were taken prisoner. The others were still running, so I shouted to the men to fire and emptied my pistol myself in their direction. I didn't hit anything, of course. You can't with a pistol. I snatched a rifle from a man, had a go myself, and then they were all in cover. They'd all gone down the slope. Now, I just want to raise a couple of points here, Gary. I've never heard the word delightful attached to the word Yorkshireman in my life. <coughs> no, no, nor me. I think he probably came from Derbyshire. Yes, I think you may be right. And the other point is, I know it's confirmation of our long-standing theory that a British officer can never hit a barn door with a pistol. To be fair, when I was in the army, I couldn't hit anything from about 10 yards with a pistol. Yeah, yeah. Did you throw it? How accurate were you at throwing it? <laughs> no, I couldn't even throw it. I was rubbish. Oh, dear. Now, um, later, Barnett came to believe that this, this, this little uh, group of Germans wasn't uh, actually a raiding party or even a patrol, but more likely a working party that just blundered into trouble, uh, not knowing that the British had moved into that area. Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, this fantastic account. I'm sorry you're having to work so hard, but I believe you're enjoying reading it. Uh, this is what Lieutenant Jerry Barnett says next. All this was very quick and took only a few seconds of time, a minute at the most. Almost immediately after they'd gone to ground, a German machine gun opened fire on us. Oh no! For some reason I thought it was on the higher ground on the left on the knoll. I set off with a few of the chaps following me along this partly made road to look for it, thinking I was having a little bit of cover from the revetment on the left of the road where it was dug into the hill. I can picture it, Gary. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my reading. I'd gone only 50 yards when the machine gun hit me. I realised from the wound I received that I'd made a mistake and it was located on the right down on the lower ground. Oh! 
I was hit in the neck and because of my crouching position, the bullet went through the right of my neck and out through my left shoulder, taking a lot of my shoulder blade with it. The hole in the neck was very small, but the hole in my back was fairly large. I didn't know that then, of course. It was a curious experience. I had time to reflect on it. I thought I was dead at first because all the consciousness of my body went. I could see and I could think, and that was about the limit of it. I knew I was folding up because I could see I was slowly falling to the ground. My body was collapsing. I thought, well, this is yet another interesting experience to add to the list. I folded onto the ground and I was lying on my back with my knees sticking up. Then I found I could move my right arm. My first thought was to push my knees down because they could be fired at. Then slowly some feelings returned. I couldn't move my left arm, that was paralysed. For some reason, I thought I'd been hitting the groin. Heaven knows why, I wasn't. I got with my right hand my field dressing out, but I couldn't open it, so I stuffed it inside my trousers, thinking I was bleeding there. Then, very bravely, my runner, King, and Sergeant rushed out to me and dragged me back along this road to where they'd half-constructed a drain. There was a hole just under the bank at the higher side of the road into a culvert underneath, and they threw me headfirst down this drain and ran for cover themselves to the ditch, crawled into the drain and dragged me through it and back to the buildings. I was just numb. I didn't feel any pain. The stretcher bearers got hold of me, took me into one of the farm buildings. I was wearing a new trench coat and a leather jerkin. Leather jerkins were issued in the winter, but they didn't have enough to go round, so we used to take it in turns to wear it, and it had been my turn that day. I asked the men cutting my clothing off to get a dressing on my back to ease me out of the jerkin rather than cut it, because it was a precious garment. It probably had a hole in the back, of course. Consciousness went then. Now, do you, do you not think that's just a fantastic account of being wounded? Uh, uh, it's almost... It, just, it almost takes you there. Like, I can't imagine the pain and the rest of it. But it's almost like he's sort of having an out-of-body experience and talking about it in the third person. It's not happening to him. It was fun. It, that is just fantastic. Anyway, continuing harassing fire meant that, that poor old Barnet could only be evacuated by the stretcher bearers the, the next night. So he, it's a long time to wait. Uh, that's, his, that's his war over. After hospitalisation and convalescence back in the UK, he's downgraded to medical category C. I think you were uh, G, weren't you? <laughs> and posted to the Green Howards. Well, that's like not being in the army. <laughs> It's like the Air Force. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he, he was just restricted to a training role back in England. He, he never returned to the 16th DLI. And, and with that, I think, we'll, I think that deserves a short break while we think about what we've just heard. The battalion was in the Sedra era for a while, engaged in patrolling and countering German patrol activities. Now, after being relieved by the 5th Sherwood Foresters, it was then withdrawn behind the Pescia for a period of rest. Then they moved back to La Mirata. Uh, that's where they'd gone before Monte Camino. Do, do you remember? Uh, and they learned they were to be attacked, uh, detached or attached. They were attached to the 138 Brigade. That's another brigade within uh, 40, 46th Division. Uh, so what, what, what were they going to do with them? Well, on the 25th of January, they would cross the Garigliano River by Not Pontoon bad, Bridge. Gary. You're getting better. Before relieving the... The sixth Yorks and Lanks in the line. Let me get this straight. You can say Garigliano, but, but you can't, can't say, say six. six. 
uh, the six Yorks and Lanks in the line in the Sujur area at around 0430 on the 26th of January. Now, they were then going to be in reserve as a series of attacks were launched by the brigade, the, the 138 Brigade, on in the Mount Toledo sector. Um, now, uh, what happens there? Well, uh, the 2nd, 4th K- King's own Yorkshire Light Infantry, they take Ruffiana. The 6th Lincolnshire's, they seized Mount Monte Toledo. And the 6th York and Lanks uh, had captured the nearby Point 400. Does that, any of that make any sense to you? Yes. Liar. <laughs> what was the 16th deal I ordered to do? Well, they were ordered forward to help secure the latter two gains. That's the uh, uh, the point four hundred and Monte Toledo, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on the 29th of January. So, at 1300 on 29th of January, A Company lead the way. They pass, uh, they're passing by Mass Valle de Suja, round the lower slopes of Monte Toledo, and then across to point four hundred, which they reach at about 16. Um, they have a few hours rest and the same day same night at 2300 guess who who's in the lead <laughs> uh, Russell Collins by any chance you're working again you are having a nightmare in this podcast uh, uh, well his platoon was selected to carry out a recce patrol um, and they are feeling around the north side of a spur onto Monte Ciola and what does uh, second lieutenant Russell Collins say it was quite a deep patrol and we got into this gully. Well, the Germans were in it and uh, that was the trouble. They were covering it, machine guns certainly on one side and possibly on both sides. We were trying to make progress, but I realised that we had gone too far and were going to have difficulty in extricating ourselves. We came under fire, so we just had to get out of the gully as soon as we could. But poor old Mawson was hit and he couldn't move. It was a question then of whether anybody could go down and recover him or not. He was some 30 or 40 yards from me to my left. I agonised as to whether or not I should go or send somebody uh, or send anybody to try and get him out. Whether or not we should hazard more of us to try and get him out. You couldn't rely on the Germans. It wouldn't be any good taking a Red Cross flag or anything like that. If anybody else went down, they would have been fired on as well. He was just unlucky, but still, that was that. Private Mawson died of his wounds, and this caused us all great sadness. He was a splendid little man, totally reliable, though he wouldn't say boo to a goose. I think that's sad. Uh, uh, can you imagine? Yeah, can you, uh, that's uh, a real uh, dilemma. Oh, I think, I think, uh, I think it's a realistic decision. How many times in the Great War have we, or a Gallipoli, where we've heard of loads of people, not loads, but people being killed trying to rescue someone who's dying? Yeah, I remember that chap you liked at Loose, who was lying in the the ground, uh, and uh, and uh, and shouted back to to uh, to, to Graves. Uh, Dumb- oh, Dumb- um, I've forgotten his name. You, you've got a photograph Samson. of his Samson. Uh, and he shouts back. I'm buggered. He didn't say that. He shouted back. There's no point. Just leave it. Don't send any more men out to try and rescue. They'll just get killed. So it is a sensible decision. But on the other hand, can you just imagine watching this Private Mawson dying out there, especially if you're his mate? Now, at first light on the 30th of January, B Company was ordered to attack Ciola, leading the way through the galley, followed up by A Company, who would then attack on the right. And it proved to be a fateful day for Tom Turnbull. Is this you as well? No. They're all you, though. Surely it's you. No. And uh, you're going to tell us what Corporal Tom Turnbull of B Company says. It was daybreak, Sunday morning. We were going down this hill. We were told Jerry was in front of us. 
Then we could see them moving about, so we got down and opened fire. The machine gun fire started coming back at us, and it was coming from both sides, sweeping all over the place. If there'd been a blade of grass, you'd have got behind it. You wouldn't, Gary. All of a sudden, poof! I thought my leg was away down the hillside. I'd got hit. That's a bullet in the foot. I love that expression. I thought my leg was away. A bullet in the foot. I got up and gave the lad next to me my Tommy gun, and I started walking back up the hill. Another corporal came towards me, and he had a rifle in his hand. Whoever was behind the German machine gun put a burst between us because he had a, he had had he'd got a weapon in his hand, and I politely told him where to go. In other words, this bloke's coming out to rescue him, but he's still carrying a weapon. Now this is the same part of what we were just talking about. Uh, I said. He's never touched me up to now. He went away. Two lads, one had been hit in one shoulder, the other in the, in the, in the other shoulder. They put their good arms around me and helped me until we could get treatment at the Yorks and Lanks Regimental Aid Post. Now, the, 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 that machine gun, where's it coming? Well, the fire, where's it coming from? It's coming from uh, Ciola and Point 150. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult situation, isn't it? It is, and coming up behind was Bill Ver. I prefer to call him William. William, yes, I know you do. And this is, in fact, Corporal William Ver of 12 Platoon B Company. And this is me as well. We were the last of the three platoons going forward. As the first platoon got there, all hell broke loose. They threw everything at us. We had to just scatter. There was a sanger, just one built round this tree. The three of us dived into this sanger. There were rocks as well you could have got behind, but this looked handier. We all jumped in. A lad threw a Bren gun in with us. As soon as we got in, we realised that they'd got a fixed line on it with a machine gun. So once we got in, we couldn't get out. He was hitting the rock, gouging it out. The other troops in front, quite a few were killed. Mr. Coots, Batman, Jack Vile, he was hit. All the flares in his pocket, in his pouch for the very pistol. They were all set alight and burnt. Sergeant Makepeace, he was killed, and several of us, others. One or two lads in front of us took their packs off and slid back. It wasn't a matter of running away. You were in a position where you couldn't do a thing about it. What could you do? The Germans had more or less done away with the first two platoons. If we'd got up and walked into it, we would have been wiped out as well. We thought we were all that was left of the company. Our platoon commander, he was a little bit of a windy bloke, really. He got his head down as well. He should have been the one to tell us. What to do, he means, isn't it? You could kid him into going back if you wanted. He didn't take a lot of persuading. <laughs> he said, oh, I've been here. I'll have to go back to the medical officer. You stay here. A piece of rock had hit him, thrown up by a mortar bomb. It wasn't much. And this is, a, I mean, we don't know, do we? Uh, the perceptions of the seriousness of a, of a wound in that sort of action and existing prejudices, we don't know what, what had happened to his officer, and I want to make that clear. That's what Bill Ver, sorry, William Ver, <laughs> thought had happened. Now, the attack had broken down. Behind B Company, A Company was still stuck in the gully, which had become somewhat of a bottleneck, with the German machine guns augmented by mortar and shell fire providing the uh, stopper. Blimey. So the two companies are eventually withdrawn, and, and soon uh, German counterattacks develop, and they're, they're trying to recapture now. They've moved on. They're trying to capture point four hundred. Uh, however, neither side could, that's it, stalemate, neither side could dislodge the other, and, and this is a period of static warfare opening up here. And, and static warfare in the mountains in January, what do you think it's like? Uh, well, it's 
pretty terrible, and I should imagine the uh, men's morale suffered accordingly. Now, this is uh, Private Ronald Elliott. Uh, he's a signaller in D Company, and what does he say? The area was so stony that one couldn't dig down, so you got stones and built up a, a Sanger fortifications, which gave you a protection against shell fire. We were shelled almost all the time throughout the day and sporadically at night. It rained. It was miserable. We had lice. We spent a good part of our time killing lice on our shirts. They had a powder supplied to us for killing lice, which you had to rub into the seams of your shirt and your trousers. It got on your balls and it inflamed them. Absolutely incredible. I also had a boil at the time. You can imagine the depths of unhappiness that there was. Morale was pretty low. One comes to the end of one's tether, no matter how good one is. It's just a question of attrition. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is a difference of moving and the sort of jokey complaining to absolutely fucked off, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that sounds more akin to the Great War, doesn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the lice and the suffering. Well, so there they are. They're in makeshift, makeshift Sanger trenches, i.e. rocks. Above uh, ground, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're at the mercy of atrocious just sodding atrocious, wet, cold, miserable weather. They've got intermittent mortar and artillery fire. They've got harassing machine gun fire. And they've got sodding snipers, you know, threatening them if they, if they, if they don't watch what they're doing. Uh, I'll tell you what, this, I remember, that in a sense, this period is one of the worst periods that is remembered by them. Uh, but there's something funny. What do you think that might be? Well, that there's no detail to their recollections. It, it was just a misery, just a pervading misery. So no detail, just an over, a sort of miasma of misery. Miasma, what a great word. Yeah. Sixth, that's a great word. Yeah, sixth. I thought, that's how you've learned to pronounce sixth now. Now, the NCOs were not unaware of the changing mood amongst their men, and uh, we're going to hear from Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton of the support company. It was cold, miserable. Uh, they were sick, they were fed up. Normally in war, you're fed up, but you could see the difference in the men. They were tired. They'd been up in these ma these hills for three weeks, so they hadn't really had a rest. None of us had had a real rest, not what you call a rest, just a couple of days when you knew straight away you were going back in the line. Your mind didn't register it as a rest at all. The men were battle-fatigued and war-weary, just fed up. They'd, been, they'd had enough. They'd been there too long. They'd been fighting since Salerno in September. I want to emphasise that. That's Four months. Ooh, maths with Gary. Now, if they were fed up, who could blame them? Well, I certainly don't. I, I think, and, and you as a former soldier were fed up in luxury barracks in Germany, weren't you? <laughs> Yes. Now, then at last, on the 10th of February, there came the welcome news that the 46th Division was to be withdrawn and reorganised. Ah, and, you know, the weather starts to improve. That's a mess. Spring never comes, does it? But Everything's it does. coming up roses. <laughs> on the 14th of February, all oh, Valentine's Day, they could have exchanged cards That's my gifts. That's my wedding anniversary. Oh, yeah. Why is it that day? So you don't forget. Yeah. What happens? You forget. Yeah. Now, on the 14th of February, they were relieved by the 2nd Hampshires and moved back across the uh, Garigliano to Lavagli. Never, 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 never was a rest more needed. And once more, you're going to relate what Company Sergeant Major Leslie Thornton of Support Company says. The B echelon moved and joined the battalion, which, which was never done. Yeah. 
because the B echelons where the supplies of transport are. Uh, then rumours started circulating around the battalion. People saying we were going home. Hey. And of course, that wasn't true. Oh. <laughs> but G1098 stores, the heavy stuff, was being handed in. People said, what's happening? Then we were told that the battalion would be out of the line for a longish period. Spirits went up. Well, it, it was true. A period of administrative reorganisation followed with a new uniform issued and the gathering together of all heavy equipment. But ready for what? Now, on 18th of February, the Corps commander, he addresses a gathering of all officers, warrant officers and sergeants. And what does he, what does he say? Well, he expressed the hope that the 46th Division would return in the future to fight alongside the rest of 10th Corps at some time in the future. So 46 divisions leaving the Italian front. Where are they going? Where, Gary? Where? Well, there's nothing else happening, Pete. Where on earth could they possibly be going? Well, they weren't going there. Where? They're not going to... to, to, to... I wasn't talking about D-Day. Where, they... Where are they going? Where? Where, Where, Gary? You'll have to tune in to find out. Cheers, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?